This is SciByte, episode 122 for March 4th, 2014. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to SciByte, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about tonight? Today, we're going to take a look at possible evidence of Martian life, 3D printing a heart, Tetris, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. That sounds like a packed show, Heather, so let's kick it off with the news. Whoop! I said with the news. <laughs> All right, Heather, where do we start tonight? All right, a team of scientists have now found evidence of past water movement through a Martian meteorite. So it is one that has landed here on Earth. So it brings up the whole debate in the scientific community over life on Mars all over again. We had, so there is a team that has recorded very specific structures and compositional features in a meteorite from Mars that suggest possible biological processes may have been at work hundreds of millions of years ago. Wow. So this is one of those things where it's not, Poor Curiosity or Spirit Rover or, you know, Opportunity, any of the little rovers, they haven't necessarily done that. But this is specifically one on Earth. So this is an asteroid, sorry, a meteorite. Something hit Mars, you know, uh, so many years ago, and it knocked up a, a chunk of the Martian surface. And then it flies through the solar system for a little while, smashes here on Earth. And so then we can tell that it's from Mars because you can tell specific materials and the composition of the oxygen atoms within the minerals. And you can actually get little pockets of uh, trapped Martian atmospheric gas. So all of these things you can go through and say, all right, yes, this is a Martian rock. Hmm. And, f- and actually in that rock, now that we're looking at it more in depth, now the Martian meteorites that we see here on Earth, we can give a whole new kind of perspective on them because we have the equipment and the technology to look at these at so much finer detail that we can stick on a poor rover driving around Mars. So in 1996, people may or may not remember, there was the Allen Hills 8401 meteorite that got the whole world a buzzing saying, we have discovered life, ancient fossilized little I remember that for sure. On Mars. Yeah. And... You know, there's a big debate here and there, and who do you ask gives an answer of, yeah, I think so, or ha-ha, they're funny. Uh. And so this new meteorite has sort of brought up this whole discussion again, where it's it was a 30-pound meteorite, and it's deep inside of it, called uh, Yamato 000593. Essentially, it's telling you where they found it, and then... And this was actually discovered in 2000. Hmm. So it'd be the zero zero, and then it's the 593rd rock found that year. But so 12 million years ago, that's when it got ejected off of Mars. 
actually fell in the Antarctic. This is one found in the Antarctica about 50,000 years ago. And it was just through the process of ice um, you know, going down and coming back up and its movement in specific areas means that we just kind of discovered it per se. Mm-hmm. And they have two different sets of features that they're seeing. They're seeing little tunnels and micro tunnel structures that thread the way through the rock. And they can actually see them with their curve, their undulating shapes, consistent from what we see here on Earth that is biologically features. Hmm, okay, yeah, we things say, you'd see from a biological life. Something that they would leave behind. Yeah, something squirmy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something squirmy. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, well, it's very similar to that. Now, there's another set of features in addition where it's these little really tiny spheres that are also similar to a rock that a Martian meteorite found in 1911 in Egypt. So it's similar to that, and it's also similar to uh, what we see in enriched carbon. We can see that in the whole er- in the areas. Hmm. So we're seeing similarities between this rock and another rock from Mars. Now, the one in Egypt, it was they were. It's all about okay. Well, these two things were here on Earth, but. How long had they been there and could there be some earth contamination onto that? But now that we've seen it in both places, on both rocks, then it's slightly more likely that that is something similar that actually occurred on Mars. Not here on Earth at all. Okay. So That's pretty compelling. Yeah. So we see these. We're like, okay, well, it's very biogenic in nature. So it's another possibility. It's showing... You know, tantalizing features that say, wow, I think that may have been formed by biology. Mm. They're definitely evidence of uh, water through clay. They can see that most definitely. Of course, this would be the six bajillionth discovery of, yes, there is water on Mars. But it's all about life would be where there is water. So what you're saying is it could potentially be life, but not as we know it. Yes. Okay, good. (laughs) Or as we know it, sort of. Oh, as we might expect it. (laughs) Yes. As it might be similar to here on Earth. Yeah. Well, hmm, very interesting. So it's looking, so now it's all about, all right, now, do those, the specific features that are there, even if we can see them with much better equipment here on Earth, still uh, still poses a real problem in analyzing those because they are so small. So it's sort of, we can't get in there and really um, put these tiny structures through the ringer. Right. But, so it's no smoking gun, but it is further evidence that says, hey, there is, it really looks like there are interesting things going on at one point. Hmm. There might, these look like they might be fossilized Martian squirmy things. Sounds like good inspiration for a future rover design just to send up there to investigate such a thing. You never know. You never know. All right, Heather. Well, why don't we take a quick little break right here? Uh, I didn't even mention it on Linux Unplugged today, but I'm going to give the SciBite audience 
uh, the, the last chance, the last take to go over to teespring.com slash last 300. We've got the hoodie and the t-shirts and the ladies tees over there. Brand new Linux Action Show 300 logo. Each shirt comes with a challenge coin. And uh, we're going to probably shut it down in another hundred or two or three. I'm not sure because uh, we have to buy the coins in batches. And so we think we're probably going to we've, we, we've reached our goal. So we'll probably shut it off probably around 12, 13, 1400. I'm not sure because everything up to 1500, then we keep all of the remaining coins. So everything that's below 1500. But I, I actually kind of want a lot of coins. So <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I, we're still kind of figuring it out. But. Ah oh, man, this new logo is so great. I've already got my sweatshirt. But you can grab one too just for a little bit longer by going to teespring.com slash last 300, probably the end of the week or so. I'm not sure. It kind of depends. If people jump on it, then they might go sooner than later. But uh, this, uh, all this is going to uh, fund uh, the new studio renovations, which um, we've, we're beginning this week. So uh, teespring.com slash last 300. Go grab yourself something nice. And then uh, you get to wear some swag. And you get a challenge coin, which I admit, probably not useful in a lot of scenarios but it's still very cool and if you ever did get into an identity challenge situation you'd have the heads up because you'd have the challenge coin and you know you know just in case so teespring.com slash last 300 all right heather what are we going to talk about in the news bite all righty there while there was there has been heart surgery on very young children but recently, a surgeon was able to map out his whole surgical procedure with, an, with a near-exact model of the patient's heart printed on a 3D printer. Oh. This little 14-month-old was, was born with four different congenital heart defects. And so that all the different doctors you know, coming at this obviously was going to be proving a challenge, and they were all trying to figure out and decide— you know, hey, what's the best way to, to go about, you know, cutting and suturing and trying to plan out the best ways to go through and fix this? Yeah. So what they were able to do is actually work with radiologists and provide data that they could use with a 3D printer. Oh, wow. Now, CD scanning, CT scanning actually pretty much is a very good um, analysis. Uh, Pretty good thing. An image, because, a good image, a good 3D image. Yes, because it scans in slices. Oh. It scans one slice, then it goes up and scans another slice. And that's exactly how a 3D printer essentially would be working this. Right. So they were able to you know, scan the heart and make a copy, you know, quote unquote copy of it in three different pieces at twice its normal size. Yeah. But they were able to make it with this very flexible plastic. They called it Ninja Flex. <laughs> Generally, 3D printing is made of stuff like, uh, in, like in Lego bricks, so yeah. very hard. Yeah. But in this specific one, it was very flexible. It allowed them to say, "All right, we'll be." They could bend it and flex it and lay out very detailed, you know, how they were going to cut it and put it together and sort of go through the whole surgical procedure. Yeah. Very planned out. Huh. You know, this makes, gosh, this makes so much sense, right? Because you essentially can do a trial run of the surgery. Yes. And so with all of that, they were able to, now they were able to print the heart. That took about 20 hours, about $600 worth. Mm, okay. So this now is like think, a serious printing. So they get hopefully highly accurate with that. Yes. Now, 
the 3D printer that if, if you watch the video in the show notes, I actually, we have one of those in our lab that some of the guys got. We're able to do a little bit of 3D printing. So that is pretty cool. It doesn't, so 20 hours doesn't necessarily surprise me, especially with the kind of detail that they would be going for. Sure, yeah, yeah. I could I could definitely see that because I know that even some of the more casual ones can take hours and hours and hours. So Oh, yes. Yeah. And so, but it allowed them to do all of this in a single surgery. You know, they were able to reduce the amount of cutting and suturing they had to do, which also led to a much quicker recovery. And so it was pretty much all down to just that one surgery, which happened on February 10th. The little guy seems to be doing just fine now. Um, uh, and I agree with Nogle in the chat room, too. It seems like a matter of only a matter of time until they've probably printed a real one. And also until they're printing all kinds of parts of the body, right? I mean, lungs yeah, we've been, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they've been hinting at these type of things. And we talk about them sometimes where they're trying to, you know, 3D print or replicate these organs. But in this case, it was specifically something that is happening right now, can help them. You know, it's, you know, we're a little ways away from having replicated organs. Yeah. But in this case, it was something that they could print it, have everything laid out and be like, okay, we're going to do these steps in this order exactly. And have a hands-on, you know, view of what they, what everything's looking at. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny too, because like, Hollywood does this, you know, before they build a like a large model scale, they'll build up yeah. a little mock-up scale and, you know, make do a first run on that. A lot of people, a lot of industries do this. You know, the aerospace industry does this. Why yeah. not the medical industry? Awesome. Well, now they're, they're stepping into the, into the fray. Yeah. Oh, oh, Heather, uh, good news. Uh, the band's here. Come on in, guys. Let's go. Yeah. Okay, Heather, what are we talking about in the two-byte news? All right. Everyone who loves Tetris, good news. All right. A recent study has shown that it actually helps reduce cravings for, like, um, dieters or smokers or no way. anything of that. Yes. So researchers created these two, st- these two groups to study. One that played Tetris for about three minutes, and the other group was told, yeah, it's, it's loading. They were given a loading screen for three minutes. <laughs> oh, torture. Yes. So then afterwards, they are able to, you know, rate your craving for cigarettes, for food, for alcohol, you know, based on, you know, you know, the strength of the craving, the intrusiveness. And the people who play the Tetris showed a 24% reduction in those cravings. Wow. And the people who just sat at a loading screen didn't get any kind of a reduction. Was it, uh, did they, did they imply that it was like because of like taking the mind off of the cravings? Like you're busy, you're preoccupied? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, this feeling of controlled, motivated, that your brain is in that sort of, okay, in that function. In that zone, in that mode. In that zone, which yeah. makes sense because you play those kind of games and suddenly you're like, oh, wow, that was two hours. Yeah, yeah. Like you're like, I forgot to be hungry. Yeah. I forgot to be this or that. I forgot that I needed to leave for work. Brain is ignoring those signals because it is busy working on something important. <laughs> yes. That makes sense. So, and this is one of those things where they're actually kind of excited about this because it is something that is easily accessible, you know, and it can replace the feeling of, you know, that stress caused by the craving. Possibly, you know, it's not out of the realm to be able to 
uh, use it at work, use it at home. Now, this is not an excuse to tell your boss that Cybite told you to play Tetris at work, just yeah. so you know. <laughs> well, science, t- scientifically speaking, boss. Yeah, scientifically speaking, this is helping me smile. <laughs> now, of course, they scientists you know would really prefer that they'd be like some healthy activity, like exercise would be able to reduce those kind of cravings. But it's what they call a neutral activity. Okay. It has a really positive impact, and it's not that negative in of itself. So for now, it's a good alternative. So if you have these kind of things going on where you're trying to, you know, quit something, if you're a little hungry, kind of cravings. If it's bugging you, if it's distracting you, bust out the yep. bust out a little Tetris on the smartphone or something. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Reach for your phone, yeah. have it set up. Yeah, and you too can have a good excuse to play a game. Maybe that's why Flappy Bird was so successful. Well, heads up, Heather, watch <laughs> out. Here's some incoming communications. All right, we got a little viewer feedback, didn't we? That's right. I got an email from Martin Lufetti giving me, sending me a article that was publishers from Springer and IEEE were removing over 120 scientific papers from their subscription services after a researcher discovered they were computer-generated nonsense. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. So over the past two years... Uh, these kind of computer-generated papers have made it into more than 30 different public published uh, conference proceedings between 2008 and 2013. 16 you know, appeared in Springer, more than 100 appeared in the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. And it's all of these different things came up. So even some of the fake papers have authors with actual affiliations that the mm. authors pretty much discovered that they were attached to it. When they were notified, hey, you have a paper here. They're like, we have a what where? Well, you were attached to it. Yes. Hmm. Uh, You know, one author was like, I have no idea why. I was just notified that I had submitted something. I don't know why they thought I was. So there's actually a program that was created to automatically detect these kind of manuscripts. Because... It sort of randomly combines all these strings of words Hmm. to produce fake computer science papers. This program was actually created in 2005 to prove that conferences would accept meaningless papers. (laughs) It was sort of to maximize their amusement. (laughs) They created this program that would split out, you know, spurt out this fake paper. Wow. And they wanted to submit it just to see what would happen. Right. You know, and there's... It happens occasionally. In fact, it's like there's free to use. It's free to download. Goodness only knows how many people have done it for whatever purpose they decide to. Yeah. But they're pretty easy to spot once you actually really look at them. Yeah. And sort of this, that program, they were able to take it and sort of tweak it and be able to use that to identify, to go through and scan all these papers and be like, hey. They kind of just did the reverse. and uh, That's what they're doing. And now they're doing the reverse <laughs> to be able to identify these. And uh, what was it? They were able to, let's see, there was actually, they had, somebody had used this to generate 102 different fake papers by this one fictional author. So you see how easy it would add to these fake papers to the Google Scholar database. Mm. And they were actually able to kind of upvote this person. So they actually started looking like a, like a good author. 
like people were giving them approval or, or reviews. Yes, they or, had so many different yeah. papers submitted and yeah. it was okay. And they were able to kind of create this fake person with all these. With a good reputation, essentially. With a good reputation that was computer spit out Wow. papers. Wow. Now, there's been a long history of, you know, journalists and researchers, you know, just putting in spoof papers just to see yeah. what would happen. And sometimes it's for kicks and giggles and sometimes it's for to be able to let them know like, hey, there is, you know, some weakness. There is some quality control here needed. You guys need to like wake up because guess what I just submitted? Gobbledygook. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> yep. Wow. Well, uh. Thanks and for, it's really easy to see, so you shouldn't try this to turn in homework. Right. Guess what? They'll probably, if they're paying attention at all. Yeah, your professor will be paying attention. Well, thanks, Martin, for sending that in. You too can send in some feedback. Just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com and click the contact link and choose Sidebite from the drop down. Or you can probably tweet it at Heather at JB underscore Mars underscore base. But, Heather, I think it's time. Now, I, I have to warn you. Uh, this is either going to create a resonance field which will destabilize our transwarp conduit, which we are currently using to route Skype through, or it's a spacecraft update. Let's find out, Heather. Here we go. Okay. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, I got to get that. Re- I don't even know why I have a resonance creator right here. It's just for this. It's, it's a Borg thing. It's a long story. So what are we talking yeah. about in the spacecraft update? All right. First of all, we'll start with the poor little U2, U2 Chinese lunar rat rover. Oh, not good news. Well, they actually were able to discover what happened. Okay. It was a control circuit malfunction in the driving unit. And it's that's the unit that's required to lower the little rover's mass so that, you know, it can that's what was able not being able to do that is what prevented it from entering its second, you know, its uh, dormancy on the second lunar night. And it, that also unit also helps them maneuver the panels into the best position to get the maximum bang for their buck on the solar panels. Panels had to be folded down in order to kind of help shield the rover from the lunar night because it gets down to below minus 180 degrees C, it's minus 292 degrees Fahrenheit, below zero. So, you know, that helps trap in what little heat they can put out, which means it helps save the, the electronics. Uh, somebody in the chat room asked, did it... Did it survive? It survived Lunar Night 2, if you recall, a week or two ago. Uh, the Chinese were actually able to say, yes, we heard from it. And also, you actually heard first from a whole bunch of amateur radio operators mm-hmm. saying, yes, we heard from it. Unfortunately, they were not able to resolve the issue before Lunar Night 3, which they went to sleep at February 22nd, 23rd, respectfully. So it'll be another two weeks after that before the Lunar Night is over. And we'll be able to see, will it survive a second lunar night in the cold without being able to do it? Mm. And at this point, it's now near its three-month lifelong expectancy. Where they said, we expect this will last three months. And now we're nearing that three-month anyway. That is rough. That is a rough shake. So we'll see if it can actually last the night. If it lasts the lunar night again then hopefully they will have thought up some way to help that control circuit. Come on, little rover, you can do it. Yep. They were able to do some in-place observations. They were able to use it uh, to get some ground-penetrating radar, take some panoramic pictures, infrared imaging, 
because all of that other stuff was working just fine. So they're able to do some in-place scientific analysis. Okay. They just weren't able to drive anywhere. Yeah. So we'll see another two weeks if it survives, if we can hear back from it, and if they're able to do something to be able to get that circuit malfunction fixed. Okay. Well, we do have a little bit of kind of good news, some uh, some Kepler news. Yes. Poor Kepler. It stopped having all of enough uh, the ability to point precisely enough. Right. And so they ended the first mission of that. However, we've mentioned it before. They will mention it again. There is so much back data they're able to go through. And they're able to go through and discover 715 new potential planets in the data. Wow. That is incredible. 305 different star systems. Which this brings the total number of potential planets to almost 1,700. Now, f- almost, uh, let's see, four of them were planets about two and a half times wider than the Earth. Another four planets have been added to be in the habitable zone hmm. where water may exist in liquid form. Interesting. So, number of Earth sized planets increased by 400%. So, we're finding some really interesting. Planets were, you know, looking for the possibility of, are you in the habitable zone? Can you have water? So we have another, a number of those popping up and a slew of other possible planets that have come up. So we will continue to hear good information from the data of Kepler. I didn't, you know, it's funny. I didn't hear a lot of places mention that. People kind of mentioned NASA discovered a whole bunch of planets. They didn't really mention sort of the whole context around the Kepler program, but that's okay. It's all right. At least the science is getting done. Yes. Well, while we're up in the sky and all these types of things, up in the up in the stars, as it were, maybe we should do a curiosity update. Are you ready? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Oh, here it goes! Touchdown confirmed. That's a wheel! All right, Heather, how is our favorite rover doing? Alrighty. They have now reached an area where orbital imagers images have kind of peaked. Reacher's interest because there's the patches of ground with striations oriented in all the sim- in all the similar direction, which means there's layers. Ah. So they're able to pause on to capture some imagery on February 20th. Completed, uh, you know, a second hundred meter, three hundred foot drive in reverse. So they've been started driving partial part of the time in reverse. <laughs> so able to drive, you know, to save the poor. Wheels to give them a little bit of uh, a break, so possibly they're not beat up quite as much. Yeah. So they're going to occasionally drive backwards, and then they'll occasionally drive forward to kind of help minimize that damage. And so they're able to pause, take some beautiful panoramic imaging. Uh, there's, I think, the image is actually uh, interactive on one of the pages. I want to oh. say, or you can on the NASA page. Okay. Or you can kind of zoom in. Oh, but, my goodness, Heather, this is crazy. Yes, it's one of those where NASA lets you zoom in and pan around, and it's really awesome, and you must check it out. Is, Show notes. I'm just hanging out on the surface of Mars right now. Yep, everyone wants to. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So they're headed towards uh, the next goal that they have is a next scientific waypoint called Kimberly, uh, which lies about a half mile ahead, and it has features where there's striations, there's these you know, um, layers that they can see where researchers plan to kind of stop for a little while and actually do some scientific investigations, possibly do some drilling. 
So this, they've had a pause here, taking some pictures on their way to their next big location. Okay. Well, I look forward to hearing more as the little rover continues on. Jump in the time machine, Heather, because it's right. time to go back. Here we go. Actually, not so bad. I'm kind of glad. Only 64 years ago, March 6, 1950. I didn't want to scare you, Heather, but I forgot to fuel up the time machine. So what oh, happened no. 64 years ago this week in science? Silly putty. It was introduced as a toy by Peter Hodgson, a marketing consultant, who portion who packaged out these one-ounce portions of material. Now, it's kind of funny. This is one of those things where the original discovery was made by a scientist who was combining uh, oils and acids in a laboratory at General Electric, researching methods to make synthetic rubbers. Now, he wasn't particularly seeing anything that he was going for, but it was I believe it was one of those things where it was left in a uh, overnight yeah in a gla- in a uh, in a beaker and he came back and he's like, "Huh, this is kind of weird." Passes it around the office as a curiosity, and then somebody saw it went. Aha, light bulb, money, dollar signs. So you're telling me right now that Silly Putty was sort of an accident? Yes. How did I know? How did I know, Heather? Well, there you go. And it's only been with us for 64 64 years of kids losing Silly Putty in carpets. Well, I will uh, be celebrating that tradition very soon. My kids have been asking me for Silly Putty. I had Silly Putty for a little while in the house, but we kept it under tight control. As, yes. as Silly Putty requires it. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, let's look up into the sky as I recalibrate the Cybite 2000. All right, Heather, what do we got up there tonight? Already or on Thursday, March the 6th, about an hour after sunset, you're going to see the Aldebaran, the orange giant star, to the upper left of the moon. You'll see the Pleiades star cluster to the upper right. So a little bit of a fuzz over the upper right of the moon, but the orange star... Uh, to the upper left is not Mars. It is actually a star. On Friday, March the 7th, now that orange giant star, Aldebaran, is below the moon. Rolling into Saturday, March the 7th, around dusk, now the first quarter moon is going to be sitting above the er constellation Orion. And Jupiter will be to the upper left of the moon. Uh, Now we're going to the planets. Dun, 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 dun. We got something new for the planets, too, uh, for you video viewers. I'll try to show some of these as we go. All right, what's our first planet, Heather? All right, Venus, the morning star. You will see that before and during dawn, Venus is in the southeast. Okay. All right. Yep. On (laughs) to Mars at 10 p.m. You don't have to get all of these all at once. Oh, it's kind of fun. I like to watch it pan because you can see where you can, if you watch the video version, you get to see where it goes from once, once, one planet to the next. Awesome. Yeah. So about 10 p.m. we've got Mars rising in the southeast with Spica, the blue-white variable star, to its six degrees to its right. That's about one fist width if you hold your arm at arm's length. Okay. They're at their highest point around 3 or 4 a.m., with Spica now to the lower right of it. Those are always a good pair to view because Mars is that orange-red color and Spica is that blue-white color. So there's nice contrasting oh, colors yeah. there. I see that. And we got Jupiter. Hey! The only planet visible in the evenings now, high in the southeast. You see a bright thing out there in the evening, southeast? Definitely Jupiter. Crossing nearly overhead. 
in the mid-northern latitudes about 8 or 9 p.m. and setting in the west before dawn. And Saturn is out there too, rising about 11 p.m. or midnight. About uh, will be the highest at the south uh, by about the beginning of dawn, way to the far left of Mars and Spica. That's a pretty good sky, Heather. Is there anything else we want to cover this week before we run? Yes. Unfortunately, it is daylight savings time once again. Oh, yes, that's right. This is where we, quote, spring ahead, even (laughs) though big parts of the country are trying to remember what spring is. (laughs) So we are, quote, unquote, losing an hour. Right. So 1 a.m. becomes 2 a.m. suddenly. So don't forget to, your phones will remember, but your alarm clocks may or may not. And sadly, push that button to put your clock ahead an hour. That's always a tough one, too, because it's Sunday and I have Linux Action Show in the morning. And that's yes. a double whammy when, it, when you lose an hour. Yes, Spring and that is on Sunday. Travel. Yeah, March 9th. Yes. Sunday, March 9th, we lose an hour. But uh, yep. we will have, uh, this is kind of handy. This is something we do. We have jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And guess what? Automatically adjust for all that kind of stuff. Just check that for your show times. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for tuning in this week's episode of SciBite. Guess what? We'd love to hear from you. You can go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click that contact link, and choose SciBite from the dropdown. Or tweet Heather, JB underscore Mars underscore base on the Twitter. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week.